Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. You are listening to Be The Change, a podcast of conversations with true visionaries who are creating new paradigms for a healthier planet and society. I am your host, Christine Demick, and my work is in finding real solutions to the biggest problems we face today, climate crisis, capitalism, social injustices, and our failing health. There are amazing humans out there that have answers, and it is my mission to have their voices heard. Together, we can raise consciousness and create a just and equal society. Together, we can be the change. What do you do when you see your community with no representation in the government? If you're New York State Assembly member Yuli New, you run for office. While she may say she never intended to be an elected official, Assembly member New was destined for her career, starting in her teens as an advocate and now the first elected Asian American to represent her district. She walks the walk as a public servant, which may be why you have not heard her name. She is too busy working on behalf of her constituents instead of climbing the political ladder. I am lucky to have her representing my district and also to call her my friend. If you are wondering how you can be the change in your own community, running for office, or how to get laws passed, this episode is for you. Thank you so much for joining me today, Yulene. I know how busy you are. I know your schedule is crazy. And it's just an honor to have you here today. So thank you. Thank you for having me. And, you know, you and I have been friends for so long, so I'm really excited to do this. I am too. It's just going to be a conversation between friends. And you just happen to be the only Asian American woman in the New York legislature and like this complete like boss woman. So (laughs) not anymore. We did elect uh, one more. So that's okay. Were you the first? No. So I was the first here, obviously. I'm, uh-huh. I'm the first Asian American here. But in the legislature, it was actually a woman named Ellen, Ellen Young. She was the first Asian American woman, and she was in the seat that Ron Kim sits in. Yeah, it was Ellen Young and then Grace Meng. So I want to start in the beginning because I, I find it so interesting what led people down the road to get into politics and to being the change. I mean, people may have this idea of politicians and that life is so easy, but it's actually probably one of the hardest jobs that you could do. I think President Biden also said it yesterday when he was swearing everyone in, is that you are working for the people. This is going to be hard. This isn't going to be easy. What brought you here? Like, what took you to this path? I have a hard time answering that. Everybody asks, but at the same time, I'm always the one who gives like the weird answer, I guess, because I never wanted to be an elected official. Ah, I didn't know that. A little bit strange, I guess. I think that my interest in government has always been on advocacy, right? And so I've always been a community organizer, somebody who's come from an advocacy background. I really wanted to know, I guess, what happens in government in order to, you know, shake it up to change it, to see what were the levers that I needed to pull to make it so that we could, I don't know, break it. (laughs) But when I was younger, I didn't know, like government seemed like such a strange thing to me because it was like rules just happening. Like I didn't think I could touch it. 
it seemed like this out there thing, like inaccessible, out there, ephemeral. Like in my mind, it was it seemed like that. And it wasn't until I became an intern when I was 17 years old, I became an intern at the Washington State Legislature where I really got to see with a bird's eye view of how government worked. And I think that that was when I finally got to understand that actually the big secret to accessing government, everybody's like, oh, what's the big secret to accessing government, right? The big secret to accessing government is actually that there is no big secret. Um, (laughs) It's true. And this is the thing. There's a myth and that myth is perpetuated and they want this. Like the people who are in power want people to think that it's inaccessible because they don't want for people to try. Because if everybody knew that you can just grab a petition, get some signatures, run for office, vote. Like if you vote, like your vote is so important. Do you know how few people vote? Like out of the percentage of the population that exists, like if people actually knew that they could access government and that their vote mattered, then everything would be different. And I think that that's the thing that's crazy, like that people don't realize that. They think that it's untouchable. That's the myth that a lot of people who are in power want you to perpetuate. Because they don't want to be bothered. Like they just want to be sitting there and, and collecting a paycheck and not have to do anything. Is that it? Or I think that everybody believes the same thing I did as a kid, right? They think that like government's this thing that you can't really touch or affect or change, right? And I think sure. that that's the power of the myth. That's the power of that big lie, right? Like that makes it so that people don't try and don't think that they can ever change anything. And that's why... I, I feel like I got into this because I wanted to break that myth. I wanted to make sure that people in my community and like in places where people never had access to government or never considered accessing government, you know, were able to have a voice because they are not represented. They're voiceless in this process. And I think that that's why it's so important that I was in advocacy. And that was why I felt like it was so important to work for the members that I did because I wanted to make sure that people had access. And I felt like my purpose is to make sure that that big myth is broken and to try to let folks know how to access government. That's why I started a group when I was a young person as a staffer in Washington state. I started like a staff coalition. And then when I I became an advocate, for a group called the Statewide Poverty Action Network, I started to see like, wow, like communities of color have no access to government. Why? And I wanted to make sure that there was a pipeline for them to be able to speak up because you know what? Community groups and communities of color don't get to hire a lobbyist. They don't get like, they don't have that pool of money, right? They don't have that funding. So I think that that was why it was so important for us to actually get that kind of coalition together because we actually started a group and you know, I was a founder of it, uh, trying to start a group, like we called it the Lobbyists of Color Coalition, where it was like all of the lobbyists who represented different groups, because we were paid to represent like SEIU and ACLU and the Poverty Action Network and like different groups. But we were never like hired to represent like our communities in a certain way, right? Like, and so I just like started a bill tracker for the community organizations and then it just kind of ballooned from there. And now it's an amazing group called the Racial Equity Group and it's out in Seattle, Washington and they still exist and they're an award-winning advocacy organization. So just wanted to, (laughs) like it's all possible. And every single year when the government's doing the budget, they're at the table. So that's the thing. We need to make sure like people know that they can have their voice at the table. And it's just by doing very simple things. 
So you, you're a real underachiever there. <laughs> I mean, you just like 17. Come no, on. So that, was when I was that was when I was in my twenties. Yeah. Okay. So early twenties. All right. Oh, okay. Well then that makes sense. Wow. Okay. So this is important stuff. There's so much here that I want people to understand. Like you said that to have a seat at the table when bills are being written. So go into that. So tell me like, why is it important you and I know what lobbyists do and, you know, they're going to push the issues, but most, I think people out there think of them as these big, wealthy people in suits going to push big issues. Some of them are. Right. They are. They are. But how can, how can someone like me who uh, I'm a mom in New York, right. And really important to me that my son gets educated on climate change. And I think that should be in his school curriculum, right? So I, you know where I'm going here. There's a Senate bill right now, but like, what can I do? Like, how do I make sure that there is a bill written right now, but how do I get it through? Like, how does someone, do I just call you up and let's sit and talk and then I have to keep bugging you or? Yep. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So that's the thing. Everybody can call their representatives and their representatives should care about what you're saying to them because you're literally my voter. I mean, granted, you're my friend, but you're also like, you're also somebody who votes and you're also somebody who lives in the community and your representatives should care about you and the things that you're going through and the things that you're worried about and the things that you are worried about for your kid, you know, because they should care about all of these things. That's the reason why you choose them, right? Like the person that you choose should be the voice for your community, not like the deciderer. You know what I mean? Like it's like, it's a very interesting thing because I think that a lot of people have different perspectives of what elected officials are, and even elected officials have uh, different ideas of what their elected <laughs> official, what an elected official is, and what they, they should be. Do. Yeah, and I think that you know, for me, like my perspective has always been of public service, right? I think like I take those two words very seriously. I am somebody who is a servant in my community, to my community, for my community. And I think that I'm here to serve and I am here to make sure that, you know, I'm a voice for our community and making sure that, you know, we in lower Manhattan here can get the resources that we need. I think that on the state level, we have seen that, you know, a lot of things are not budgeted for communities of color and for people with disabilities and for folks who who need it the most. And I think that it's very apparent in our budget. And so I think that we need to make sure that we have voices there to be able to fight on some of the things that the governor's proposing or the things that he's proposing to cut. And then we need to make sure that our house is actually fighting for those things because we're the people's house, right? And I, I also take those two words very seriously, right? We are the people's house. And I think that it's really important for folks to know that we're supposed to be representing the people. A lot of times, like I said, you know, representatives and people have different perspectives of what elected officials should be. On my end, I think that there's one definition for it and that's public servant. What about the Senate? (laughs) Well, so the Senate is also supposed to be serving people. They're, They're basically the same, except, you know, they represent a larger area and they call it the upper house. <laughs> but it's the same, right? And I think that we really have the job of making sure that we are actually serving people. And that's the only thing that we should be doing and thinking of doing. Right. Everything else is just stuff that people put onto the job. 
but in reality, there's a reason why it's called public service. And that got lost. It got really lost the past four years, but that's been a gradual, you know, not too many people think that way, although that is how it started out. And I think it is an interesting segue to where I wanted you to differentiate for me the work you do on a state level and the work you do on a local level. So you represent our district, which is here in New York City. It's downtown. It's Chinatown. It's the financial district, also known as FIDE and Battery Park City, right? It's District 65. Yeah, and the Lower East Side. And the Lower East Side. Okay, sorry. Thank you. And what's interesting to me is that what's happening right now, I spoke to a mutual friend who, you know, you had helped out, Patrick Mock, who's on uh, the last episode. And, you know, we were talking about getting money to the businesses. And it struck me that how the businesses of Chinatown, after speaking with friends there, who filed for the loans received so little money in comparison to what I received. I'm not saying, I don't know if, if there's uh, races involved. I don't know how they would do that even on the application, right? But I think it's accessibility. It's not necessarily that someone looked at my application and said, oh, we're going to you know, give it to her. But I think it was what I had access to and what certain people of color didn't have access to. Yeah. And most people don't know this too, that it was as of 2018, why we can't get like real live data in 2021. But the last poverty report I could find was 2018. Asians are number two in 2018 and in 2017, it was number one in poverty, right? Yeah. Uh, Hispanics are now number one. So the zip code happens to be, so what happens is that there's wealthy people who buy properties there who have $3 million lofts in Chinatown, Mott Street. It also butts up against Soho. You know, we know how that grid is drawn, right? Yeah. But I'm not exactly sure. But why did the residential money figure into the businesses? Can you explain that to me? I thought it was a very poor decision. And I wrote a letter with a bunch of different community groups talking about how things should be taken into account by census tracts maybe and like I think that the community is not very well served by some of the the things that the city has done and I think been left out continuously whether it's for loans for benefits for anything I mean like you said Asian Americans are the most impoverished group in in the city um, in the state and also you'll see statistically you can find this but that Asian Americans are the least like have the fewest beneficiaries of benefits programs. So they access programs less. They also are not included in the budgeting when it comes to organizations or when it comes to different nonprofits or when it comes to um, just community groups, et cetera. Like they're not funded in our budget the way that many other groups are. So I think that it's really important that we start to talk about that and make sure that we actually have funding and services and then funding access, right? Like I think that this is really making it so that we can have equal access to things. I've talked about this at length, but in our New York state budget, there wasn't a single dollar allocated to Asian American groups until I got there. Now, so when we're looking at this issue, and then you and I discussed that, 
you know, you said you wrote letters and et cetera, right? So you, you've done that work, but it really comes down to a local, local level, which is New York City. So it's a New York City issue, which then comes to our council member. And what and I found- the agency and the mayor's office, right? I think right. like, yeah, that's has a lot to do with it, right? I think that the agencies were the ones who made a decision based off of what they had done past, like- you know, recent years. And then instead of like fixing something that was already a problem, they decided to perpetuate it. So why does this problem keep happening? I know that you're doing your work, but how then do we move? Because our council member is Margaret Chen. So Margaret Chen, I believe lives in the community as well. Does she not live in Chinatown? But why wouldn't she be pushing hard? Like it's hard for the public. And I guess then when you're looking at these disenfranchised communities, you know, there's a language barrier. There's so many things. How can they push her to do it? Yeah, I think that, you know, being a member of the city council, you're also like, just like I think any elected office, like you have, you know, a very large district, you have a lot of different issues that you're working on. I'm not really sure what the behind the scenes conversations are, right? Like I, I personally on the state level, and so I'm not sure what the city level conversations are like. We don't know what the background conversation is. That being said, I think that she recognizes that there's a problem. She's stated that, but like, I think that there's different things that also maybe that we don't know happened or didn't happen. Right. But I think that on my end, there is something I can do, which is to kind of advocate and be a community partner and a stakeholder. But I think that the negotiations have to happen on the city end when it comes to changing it and making sure that there's resources for our community from city agencies, et cetera. The biggest thing I think that, you know, I've had an issue with is like just the language access issue, which by the way, we passed, you know, there there is an executive order out there. Like the governor was willing to say like, hey, like these are things that need to happen for all the agencies to comply to make sure that folks have language access. but we have not seen that right like with the rollout of the vaccines with the rollout of the testing with the rollout like for all of these things like it's been really hard for folks to get access because there's just has been a lack of language access there's been a lack of consideration on getting the outreach with the right groups etc you know even the program that I started with Patrick on food you talked about it a little bit but like that was from my own friends and like my donors I was like calling up my friends being like, hey, like, do you think that you could give to this so that we can get culturally appropriate food that is nutritious and hot delivered or picked up by folks in the community who need it? And, you know, it started out with just us being like, oh, let's give out like 150 meals a day. And then it became like, you know, (laughs) yeah, yeah, thousands and thousands and thousands of meals. And it wasn't because it was free. It was because people needed them. And I think, you know, he did mention that. He said that it wasn't free. It was all through donations. Yeah. He mentioned that, that you brought him the first donor. And I had asked him, I said, well, why wasn't Meals on Wheels there? Or like, you know, there's a ton of things in the city. Like, why isn't that? So this is my issue. (laughs) So this is like why the city stuff and, and the state stuff and like, you know, just the community stuff is so important. During this pandemic on the federal level, we saw that there was no help. On the state level, we passed another austerity budget, no revenue raisers, 20% cuts across the board, no help. City budget, again, 
no help. And instead, like everybody was just like, let's recreate the wheel a million times instead of like actually doing something that will actually solve the problem, which is to expand our own social safety net and like make sure that we grow the things that are working and like don't fund the things that aren't, but fund heavily and invest in our communities. And like one of the big things that I was just like, this is such a mistake was the food program. Everybody was like, oh yeah, great, free lunches or whatever. But the food program didn't need to be the way that it was. Like they basically contracted with these big corporations to bring in food, right, at a certain price. And that's like billions of dollars of contracts, right? Mm -hmm. And you probably saw on the streets, just like I did, like applesauce cups full, unopened. What was going on in those food baskets? All right. Well, every single day, (laughs) like I would ask like, hey, what are you getting in that? Right. Mm -hmm. And it was cookies or crackers, milk and apple and applesauce. And I was like, that's all sugars. Right. (laughs) Or there's like heavy in salt and carbs. And it was just nothing that was nutritious, nothing that was culturally appropriate. Like if you had diabetes, you couldn't eat that. If you had renal failure, you couldn't eat that. Like if you had congestive heart failure, you couldn't eat that. Like these were all things that like majority of people who were the most at risk could not actually access. And it wasn't helping the people who actually wanted something that was nutritious. Like it was so sad. Like you get a bagel with like stuff on it. Like even if you were trying to get halal meals, it was like an army ration. It was so not nutritious and it was not hot. There were so many things about this program that bothered me because what we should have been doing was we should have had something that would be like an expansion on SNAP or an ability to give people cash just like they did with their kids in school, right? Like, I think that if you could go and help the small businesses, like buy the things that you needed, like what you felt was nutritious and delicious and like things that were actually going to be culturally appropriate, right. you would have had a very different outcome. Right. Like, small so, businesses would have had help, money. Like it wouldn't have been like people waiting in line in the cold or like in heat. You know, we wouldn't have had people passing out in the food lines. You wouldn't have people dying of starvation, literally waiting for food. So then where does that come from? Because you're exactly right. And I had said that to Patrick and I said, one of the things that I loved about it was that not only was it culturally appropriate, that it was nutritious. That's when Patrick was telling me, people are coming in here for cup noodles and they just want the hot water and they wanted something hot. And I was like, well, let's get them what they actually need, which is actually a culturally appropriate, delicious, hot meal. Right. And so we started this program and every single time, like I had food requests from the community, I would talk to Patrick and we would get funding for it and like whatnot from like some of my donors, et cetera. And this is why it's like, you know, all of this is our neighbors. So like I said, when the federal government didn't stand up, when the state government didn't stand up, when the city government didn't stand up, our neighbors did, which I mean, whoever's listening, right? The Christine Dimmicks of the world. Hello, Christine. (laughs) (laughs) My friends here in lower Manhattan, they were the ones who helped out the most. Yeah. Went all across the city, all across the country. I had posted about what we were doing and we actually got so much support, like all the funding that Patrick has been using has been from the public. And so uh, it wasn't until more recently, we were actually connected with a group called Rethink. My friend Winston was a co-founder there and helped to connect him. And, you know, now they do 
his meals are getting delivered alongside rethink meals. And one of the other things that I felt like was such a huge loss, like on the state level, what we should have been doing was investing in our settlement houses, right? Like I've always been fighting for our settlement houses with the settlement house initiative, but they are the ones who have been servicing a lot of the elderly, a lot of the seniors and a lot of the homeless population. And they were forced to shut down their kitchens and the food programs that they were already running. So you have to remember, they were doing lunches, et cetera, for yeah. seniors and doing like the dinner programs, et cetera. But people can gather. But what we should have done on the state level was invest in these programs, make it so that they can hire more so that they can get some delivery out. And then they could have covered all of the community that they were already serving so that these folks were not forced to wait in line at right. the food line at DIFTA, like for DIFTA, right? And I think that that's the thing. We should have been expanding the things that we had. We should have been thoughtful about our approach. We didn't have to recreate the wheel. You know, why are we having taxi drivers from the Department of Sanitation covering to deliver food that was being paid for by corporations that, well, the city was paying for it through corporations, buying it from corporations. And I'm like, actually, what we should have been doing was actually the state should not have been cutting across the board. 20% from the actual organizations that we should have been investing in to make it so that we could have more help in our communities rather than less help from the people who knew exactly what our communities wanted and needed. So you're involved. So you're saying that was at a city level or was that with a state level? Like if you don't know the answer, then how the heck am I going to, you know? Well, so I do know the answer to that. So it's part and part, right? So the contracts from DIFTA were obviously on the city level. The cuts from our two our social service agencies came from both. And the regulations on the kitchens and the equipment and all that stuff came from the state. So like there's all these different things that are from different places. And so we had to make sure that folks are actually doing things thoughtfully and together. The city and the state and the federal government should always be working in tandem to make sure that people could have better thoughtful policy. And yet I think that this time around in the last four years, things have really changed a lot and broken down a lot to where the federal government wasn't helping us in the way that it needed to. We didn't get any resources. And then the state government wasn't willing to raise those resources to fill that gap. Right. But I do feel like money probably would have been saved had we done it your way. Yeah, definitely. Like that's also another thing. Like I have a bill that's been like sitting there forever. And it's been about, you know, how our social benefit systems should actually take off asset limits. Right. So like, why have we still kept on doing these antiquated, messed up asset limit things when in actuality, I'll just like put this out there for folks to think about. But asset limits on our social benefit system actually just makes it so that we have to spend so much money on admin just because somebody's like, oh, somebody's going to cheat the system. It's like, actually, very few people cheat the system. There's like literally such a small percentage. And by the way, the money spent like that people have stolen, quote unquote, or whatever, or like fraudulently taken, quote unquote, is so little in comparison to the billions of dollars spent on administrative fees and like on checking on them. Like, well, why don't we just take off asset limits for all of our social benefits so that everybody can have access to them for what they need. And then actually you'll save more money that way. You'll save billions of dollars in admin. So why is it still sitting there? How long has it been sitting there and why? Like for what? Your bill. Oh, (laughs) I introduced it like literally my first year in the legislature. (laughs) And why is it sitting there? Because people 
will say that it's not politically movable, that people don't want to, don't you want to do a bill that will make it so that anybody can access anything? Like those people. I mean, you'll, you'll hear it. I mean, across the state, all the representatives, they'll, they'll so say the representatives, like, right. So you need people like in order for you to get a bill moved, you need your coworkers, basically. I need constituents to speak up to their legislators <laughs> and say that this is a great idea because think about it. If, they weren't so busy checking to see if like somebody made such and such amount. Like, and by the way, trust me, billionaires aren't going to be like, I want that $32 and snap dollars. Like, right. like but we'll make a difference is if somebody who's making like $5 over the limit, like they still need $35. Okay. That's fine. Like you need $35 for your food. Like that's okay. But that will make a difference between like a kid having school lunch or not, or like a kid having, the ability to be able to be fed and not hungry, you know, for, no. for the parents. Like, it's you know, crazy. I mean, you bring that up. And when schools shut down, right, then we all got this letter from the DOE saying that we were all going to get our card, a card for all the free meals that our kids missed, whether we're on the free lunch program or not, we're just going to get a card. And we don't need the card. And so we wanted to not keep the card, have it go back into the system, help someone else, help the reserves. That wasn't an option. It just got mailed out to everyone. And then if you did get the card, then you figured out you couldn't like give it to anyone else. And so then you had to like use it and then people were using it and then taking that money and donating it to someone. It was a mess, right? And it didn't have to be that way. And so much money was lost. And it just comes down to that. But why not give it to the people who need it and apply for it, right? Right. Like that's the thing that I'm like, oh. But I've asked you several times, you don't aspire to a higher office. You don't aspire to governor. You don't aspire to mayor. You like where you're at, right? Because to me, it's like, well, damn, why aren't you running for mayor at least? And you said you like being where you're at. So tell me about that. Talk a little bit about that. So I just think that one of the biggest things for me is that I've worked almost 20 something years in state government. And that's where I have a lot of experience. And also I think that with that experience, I'm able to be the most powerful advocate that I can be for my constituents and for the people in this community. And I think that that's why you know, it's so important for me to utilize my strengths and like the things that I have to boost all of the things that haven't been happening for our communities, you know, and I think we need to make sure that we have that representation so badly because there's just been such a lack. And so when I was working for Ron, that was when I really kind of saw the need. And that's why I, I decided to run. And so when I decided to run, I, I feel like I made a really huge decision personally because I don't know how to better put it, but I just, I made a commitment to set this community up to have the best kind of representation and accessible and transparent government, you know, and I think that I have not yet achieved that. <laughs> uh, I feel like I have not yet achieved a pipeline for our young people to be able to run and win yet. And I think that we've, we've gotten really, really far, right? This is the first time that we've gotten the Senate majority. This is the first time that we've had, well, not the first ever, but like, it's been a long time since we've had a Senate supermajority and we've had 
the ability to have so many more young people, so many more people of color, so many more women running for office and winning. Um, and so that's something that I'm working on. And I feel like, you know, I kind of helped to break a lot of those barriers and I'm helping to make it so that folks have that access. So I'm, I'm not willing to leave something until it's finished, right? Like I'm not willing to try to do something else except for like try to give my expertise because I never planned on being elected. You know, like I said, like my goal is not like I'm going to be an elected. I'm, gonna, I'm so ambitious and like want to climb as far as I can or whatever. But I do have a goal of making sure that my communities here in lower Manhattan and the communities that I represent whether it's the disability community or the community that has had so little voice in government, our Asian American community, all of our communities can really be able to have access in a real way and be able to also know that that big myth is broken, right? That everybody can be an advocate for themselves. You know, when you ask me like, what, how is it that you can access somebody? It's like, well, just call, right? Like everybody should be able to do it. And I want people to know that, that their voice is powerful and that we all can access government from wherever we sit. And we can also lead from wherever we sit. And you don't need a title. You don't need an office. You don't need a desk. You need to be able to speak up and that's it. Like, you can lead from anywhere and I don't even need a pencil. Right. And so I think that it's so important to let that everybody know that that could be them and like whatever issue it is that you care about, speak about it. Whatever thing that you want to have changed, you should talk about it, change it, get people to support it. You can change the world in that way because there is no big secret. And so that's it. I love that. And I've seen it firsthand with you when you came and you spoke to the children at uh, my son's school and they, they came and visited you. And I saw it not only in the Asian American children there, but in the girls that they were able to see themselves in you. It was just such a thing to see them, their eyes, to actually think that, wow, I could have this position in politics. So I want to ask you, and I ask everyone as we close up here, What keeps you being the change? Because I know that this is not an easy job. I have stayed away from politics myself, just seeing because a lot of my friends are politicians, such as yourself, and I see what it does to you. I see what you have to deal with on an hourly basis. What keeps you getting up and being the change and keep running and keep going? And what is that? What's that drive? I think that the biggest thing is obviously the people. For me, it's always the people. It's you, it's our neighbors, it's like the people that I care about. I mean, I I talk to my constituents every day, right? We're on the phone. People know my cell number. People come over. (laughs) When the office is open, come over, have some coffee, then we'll have tea. (laughs) Like that's a true story. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's like a clubhouse. Like people like come to the office, people come to my house, people will be like, Hey, I just wanted to drop by this note to your door. I'm just gonna knock on it. You don't have to answer it because you know, COVID, but like just no, and like I'm like, okay. I mean you could have put a stamp on it, but like, it's fine. I you know, I I walk people's dogs for them, like I know their grandmas, like you know, I just I think that this is the community, this is my fam, you know, like I think that it's love, you know, I think that I, I love everybody who who's here and I think that that's what drives me. I think it's just the people, I mean, you can't not get up when you've seen the 
businesses that you love go out of business and you can't knock it up when you see that there's seniors who are hungry and you can't knock it up when there are folks who not had anybody call them for weeks on end. You can't knock it up when you've called that person and you found out that they had a stroke and nobody's talked to them and they were sitting in their own feces for four days. Oh. You know, you can't not get up. Like you just see that there's such a need and that's the way that, you know, this job is. And that's why I say it's public service because you're serving people and you have to know that when you're trying to, to hear what people have to say, that they have a lot to say. <laughs> um, so be a good listener and Yeah, I think that that's the reason why I get up. I think that it's really important to hear what people have to say. And that comes from a place of knowing that it's important. And that's the only thing that drives me. I mean, it's definitely not the money or the friends. Like, I'll put it that way. (laughs) Those vacation perks. Yuli New, thank you so much for being the change, for being on... I know you have to go. I've taken up so much of your time, but will you come back on again so we can do it again? Can we have like a part yeah. two, part three? Because yeah. there's so much more, but I, I can hear your text going off. I know you got to go. So will you promise, will you come back on? Can you? Absolutely. But I do want to also give one last shout out and that is to my staff. Like I will say this, there is no member who can do anything without their team. And if you are somebody who wants to get involved, like you should definitely think about, you know, working for a member or volunteering for an office. There's always places for you to volunteer. There's always places for folks to help out. And we are doing so much work. I know it's harder with like, you know, people want to like get into an office and do stuff, but it's not like that right now because of COVID. But please volunteer, please help out. Like, you know, if you want to just do wellness calls with us, like help out and contact us. And so how they contact you? Where do we find you? On Instagram? Where, which on Instagram, on uh, Twitter, in our office. Our office email is very simple. It's info at yulinnew.org. So it's I-N-F-O at Y-U-H-L-I-N-E-N-I-O-U.org. So just contact us anytime. And for folks who need my cell phone, just ask Christine Dimmick. <laughs> Can we give out Lawrence's email? Oh, yeah. Lawrence. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Lawrence is my chief of staff. Christine's going to get me in trouble. Um, <laughs> so if you want to email Lawrence, it is L-A-U-R-E-N-C-E at yulinu.org. Every single one of my staff is actually just their first name at myname.org. So anybody can contact anybody. We're super open and transparent and you can contact any of us. Yeah, just pick up the phone. Just walk in. I mean, there's volunteer opportunities. So go out and help your community. Thank you so much. Love you. Thank you. You too. Bye, Christine. Bye. I hope you enjoyed this conversation and are inspired. We grow with supporters and listeners like you. So please share this podcast with your community and follow us on Instagram at bethechange.nyc. And to learn more about our guests and what you can do to be the change, go to our website at www.bethechange.nyc. That's be the change.nyc. Thank you and be well.